Welcome back to episode 217 of the audio experience for basketball officials, the Crown Refs podcast. In this episode, Zach is back with Video Rules Talk episode 8, as we've enhanced this show to include video now and provide you that visual to help you better understand the rules. In this episode, Zach discusses the NFHS points of emphasis just in time for the upcoming 21-22 season. He covers everything you need to get prepared for this season. Hope you enjoy this episode and it brings you a lot of value. Do me one last favor before you listen. Have a great rest of your day. The 21-22 season is right upon us, and we've got five new points of emphasis this season to focus on. Let's talk about those. What's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rules Talk. Today, we are talking about the 21-22 NFHS high school points of emphasis. Let's not waste any time. Let's go ahead and jump in. What are the points of emphasis this season? We have five. One. Officiating mechanics and signals. Two, timeout administration. Three, unsporting conduct. Four, screening. And five, euro steps, spin moves, and jump stops. Legal or illegal. Let's first start with number one, mechanics and signals. The NFHS Basketball Rules Committee expects officials to adhere to the approved mechanics and signals. I'm not going to read the rest of this here, and I'm not going to do a deep dive today on our mechanics and signals, but the one thing that we do need to know this season is that the punch or team control foul has been eliminated. It is no more. Instead, we're going to go back to the old behind-the-head player control foul. That's going to be used for both player control and a team control foul. This time, you have an illegal screen, got the foul behind the head point. No longer will you call the foul and use the team control foul signal. Let's talk about number two, which is timeout administration. Who can call timeouts? When can they be called? If a coach calls a timeout, does that mean they automatically get that timeout? Well, let's take a look at NFHS rule 5-8 and specifically article 3. So a timeout request can only be granted if there is player control, if I am holding or dribbling a live ball as seen here. A timeout can also be granted if the ball is dead unless a replacement of a disqualified or injured player or a player directed to leave the game is pending and a substitute is available and required. So to answer the question that I had a minute ago, a timeout request must be granted in certain scenarios only. Just because a player or a coach requested that timeout, that does not mean they get it. The committee is concerned that officials are granting timeouts during loose ball scenarios. For example, if a pass has been deflected or an interrupted dribble and then you have two players both going to attempt to secure control of that ball, they're concerned that we as a whole are are granting those timeouts when no player control exists. So it's important to know, again, When does player control exist? That's when a player is holding or dribbling the live ball. Let's just make sure we slow down and we're not granting timeouts during loose balls. The third point of emphasis we have today is unsporting conduct. The committee is concerned about inappropriate conduct by players, bench personnel, coaches, officials, and spectators. Programs are educationally based and conduct that is not tolerated in other educational settings shall not be accepted. To that point, this is probably an area of the game where we could all get better, myself included, 
we have a tendency to be too nice with players and coaches. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to read off of the committee's list here. A, game management needs to pay particular attention to spectators. We don't want to go out of, you know, come off the court and start dealing with fans. Uh, we want to make sure our game management handles that. So it's important, as in point B here, to remind our game management to handle those things before problems arise. Point C from the committee here is very important. Officials should not tolerate inappropriate conduct from players and coaches. The rules do allow for a warning to be given, but it is not mandatory. We do not have to give a coach a warning before giving him or her a technical foul. So it's important that we are enforcing the rules as written. And luckily for us, we do have some examples of what should be technical fouls by rule without a warning. So let's go over to Rule 10-5 and take a look at that. Rule 10-5, Article 1, the head coach and all bench personnel shall not commit an unsporting foul. Some examples of unsporting fouls are disrespectfully addressing an official. This, all of this stuff also applies to players as well. B, attempting to influence an official's decision. C, using profane or inappropriate language or obscene gestures. And finally, D, disrespectfully addressing, baiting, or taunting an opponent. All of these things are, by rule, technical fouls. Of course, we can work with them a little bit. We want to try to talk them out of these situations, but if a player is cursing at you or another player, automatic. You don't have to think about that. That's a technical foul. The same thing with coaches and anybody on the bench. They are not allowed to disrespectfully address you. They can't rise from the bench you know, in, in reaction to your call. They can't try to influence your decision by repeatedly you know, standing up and trying to give a travel signal. So that's something you take up with the head coach. Coach, please help me out with your bench. I can't have them standing up every time you make a foul call. Something like that. If you look at Rule 10-4, Article 6, the unsporting fouls, the examples given here are almost the exact same. We have disrespectfully addressing or contacting an official or gesturing in such a manner as to indicate resentment. B, we have using profane or inappropriate language or obscene gestures. C, baiting or taunting an opponent. D, purposely obstructing an opponent's vision by placing hands in front of the eyes. I'm paraphrasing there, but if I'm guarding you on the out-of-bounds, I can't put my hand in front of your eyes to prevent you from seeing your team. And you can't do that to me, too. E, climbing on or lifting a teammate to secure a greater height. We've got F, faking being fouled, otherwise known as flopping. That is a technical foul by rule. G, using alcohol or any form of tobacco product, beginning with the arrival at the competition site until departure following the completion of the contest. H, removing the jersey and or pants or skirt within the visual confines of the playing area. And finally, I, leaving the playing court for an unauthorized reason to demonstrate resent, disgust, or intimidation. Each example I've given here is unsporting conduct, and it is a technical foul by rule. We are not required to give warnings in these scenarios before we give the technical foul. Again, you might want to work with them a little bit depending on the game and the scenario, but you always have this in your toolbox, and you can always be defended by the rulebook if you enforce the rules as written. The fourth point of emphasis we've got today is screening. The screening restrictions are the same at every level. I've already done a video taking a deep dive into screening, and I'm going to put that here. But for today's purposes, we will just do a brief overview. We'll look at what the committee put out for us. And if you want to take a deeper dive, feel free to watch that video here. Screening. 
Screening, by definition, is legal action to delay a player while touching the floor without causing contact to prevent an opponent from reaching a desired position. Legal screening is when the player who is screening an opponent is stationary when contact occurs. They can't be moving. They have to have both feet on the floor when contact occurs. Time and distance are relevant. And again, the screener shall be stationary except when both the screener and the opponent are moving in the same path and direction. If I'm screening and my opponent is both, we're both going this way, there is no restriction that I be stationary. Illegal screening is when the player who is screening an opponent is moving when contact occurs, does not give sufficient distance in setting a screen outside the field of vision of a stationary opponent when the contact occurred, does not respect the elements of time and distance of an opponent in motion when contact occurred, and we all know D, a player may not use arms, hands, hips, or shoulders to force movement through a screen or hold the screener and then push the screener aside in order to maintain a legal guarding position. If the screen is set within the field of vision of a stationary opponent, the screener may establish a screen as close to the opponent as desired, providing there is no contact. If the player you are screening can see you, the only requirement is that you do not touch that opponent when you're screening. I can get as close as I want. For example, I could be this close. And as long as I haven't touched you, I'm good. I'm legal. If the screen is set outside the field of vision of a stationary opponent, the screener must permit the opponent to take one normal step toward the screen without making contact. So, if I'm screening someone and they can't see me, I can't be that close as I was just a minute ago, I have to allow one normal step between myself and the opponent so that he or she can take a step toward the screen without making contact. Finally, if we have an opponent in motion, the elements of time and distance do apply. The screener must leave enough space so that the player who is being screened is able to avoid the screen by stopping or changing direction. This distance is never less than one normal step and is never more than two normal steps. That's a brief overview of the points of emphasis for screening. Again, make sure you check out that video where we take a deep dive, we look at some video examples of screens, what's legal and what's illegal. For now though, let's move on to the last point of emphasis, which is Euro steps, spin moves, and jump stops, legal or illegal. This can seem like a lot to cover in one point of emphasis, but really it all boils down to the pivot foot. All of these moves have to be executed within the parameters of 4-44, the traveling rule. It's impossible to officiate traveling if you don't know the rule, one, and two, if you can't identify the pivot foot. So let's take a look at rule 4-44. Let's look at all the restrictions for traveling, and then after we read them, we will break them down. The first one here, article one. A player who catches the ball with both feet on the floor may pivot using either foot. When one foot is lifted, the other one is the pivot foot. Pretty simple to understand here. If I catch the ball with both feet on the floor, I have not established my pivot foot yet. Once I pick one foot up, the other foot is the pivot. Article two, a player who catches the ball while moving or dribbling may stop and establish a pivot foot in one of the following three ways. A, if both feet are off the floor and the player lands one simultaneously on both feet, either foot may be the pivot, just like in article one. If both feet are off the floor and the player lands on one foot, followed by the other foot, the first foot to touch the floor is the pivot. And three, if both feet are off the floor and the player lands on one foot, the player may jump off that foot and simultaneously land on both feet. This is what we call a jump stop. Neither foot can be the pivot in this case. But, there is a but, the player is allowed to lift one of those feet 
in an attempt to shoot or pass. They just can't put that foot back on the floor. Let's say you have one foot already on the floor. That foot is the pivot when the other foot touches in a step. So that's how we establish a pivot foot, but what can we do after that? After I've came to a stop and I've established a pivot foot, Article 3, the pivot foot may be lifted but not returned to the floor before the ball is released on a try for goal or a pass. Similar concept to if I jump here in B. If I jump, I, I'm removing my pivot foot from the floor, so I can't return that pivot foot to the floor. So you see this, if I jump and I don't pass, I can't get shot off and I come back down. The reason that's a travel is because I've lifted my pivot foot and then put it back on the floor before I've shot or passed. Point C here in Article 3, the pivot foot may not be lifted before the ball is released to start a dribble. You see this a lot of times at the top of the key, on the wing, the player's ripping through and they're trying to make a quick move to the basket. And before they've released the ball to start a dribble, the pivot foot is lifted. This is a travel. Article 4, after coming to a stop when neither foot can be a pivot, such as in the jump stop example we gave a second ago, one or both feet may be lifted but may not be returned to the floor before the ball is released on a pass or a try for goal. Players coming down the lane jumps off one foot, lands simultaneously on both. They can still lift one foot to shoot. They can lift one foot to pass. They can jump. They just can't return those feet to the floor before they do one of those two things. What's different here is that neither foot may be lifted before the start of a dribble. Similar to if one foot, the pivot foot, has been established, you can't lift that pivot foot before you start your dribble. In this scenario, when we have a jump stop, you can't lift either foot before you start the dribble because neither foot can be the pivot. Finally, Article 5 here, a player who is holding the ball may not touch the floor with a knee or any other part of the body other than hand or foot. And B, after gaining control while on the floor and touching with other the hand or foot, you can't get up. You may not attempt to get up or stand. So we've talked about each article in the traveling rule. Take these rules, apply them to the Euro steps you see in your game, apply them to the jump stops, apply them to the pre-dribble travels when the, the pivot foot is lifted before the start of a dribble. This point of emphasis is long and complicated, but really you can boil it all down to identifying the pivot foot, when is it established, and then once it's established, what can you do after that? Thank you guys for sticking around to the end of the video. We've touched on all of the points of emphasis this season from the committee. Hopefully we've given you a little bit of a clearer view about what we should focus on this season. So take these tips, take these points of emphasis, study, focus on these, take them into your season coming up pretty soon. I know some people already have games, but no matter what, if you've got games now, if you've got games coming up, always serve the game.